God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty, but by my name, the Lord, I did not make myself known to them. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land in which they lived as sojourners. Moreover, I have heard the groaning of the people of Israel, whom the Egyptians sold as slaves. And I have remembered my covenant. Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from slavery to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God, and you shall know that I am the Lord, your God, who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will bring you into the land I swore to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to you for a possession. I am the Lord. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord God, God, I thank you. I thank you for the book of Exodus, Lord. I thank you for narrative. I thank you for the story that truly happened, Lord. Your hand in work in the nation of Israel as they came out of, of Egypt, Lord. God, I pray as we continue through the book of Exodus that we learn about you, that we learn who you are, Lord, that we can get our eyes off of ourselves and start to look at you as the sovereign God of the universe. Be with us, Lord. I pray that you reveal your name to us as we go through these chapters quickly, Lord. I pray that you help us understand the, the narrative of Exodus, and in understanding it, Lord, we learn more about you. Be with us this morning, in your son's name. Amen. Today we're going to kind of have an unusual sermon. Um, my goal is to review Exodus chapters 1 through 10. It's been a while since we've been in the book of Exodus, and there's a lot of uh, new families that have um, joined our church in this last summer. I want to get us back as a church in the flow of the narrative of Exodus. Again, most of Exodus is uh, narrative. It's biblical narrative, historical narrative. It's true story that's been written down for us to understand, again, better who God is. And I I'm going to give you a warning before we jump into this, and I think I felt it first service. We're going to cover a lot this morning, and um, if you get lost in the details today, uh, I just promise you next week we're going to slow down a little, about halfway through the sermon, first service, I kind of thought maybe I bit off too much in trying to cover everything, but we'll do our best to jump through uh, this sermon and go through the, all these different chapters, but let's start in the beginning, Exodus chapter 1, verse 1. Exodus chapter 1, verse 1. Again, verse 1. These are the names of the sons of Israel who came, came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his household, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan, Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. These verses, these first few verses here, are important because they point us back to the book of Genesis. It's important to understand that Exodus picks up right where Genesis left off, with the 12 sons of Jacob, the 12 brothers in Egypt. Exodus is the continued story of Genesis, in other words. There's none of the themes, there's a number of themes in Genesis that are really important that carry over into the book of Exodus, important for the book of Exodus. One of these themes is the seed of the woman. We've talked about this a lot in Genesis 3.15. 
the prototype gospel. Right after the fall of mankind, we see uh, in the curse of the serpent, hope in a, in, a, in a type of gospel that points us to the hope that we have in Jesus Christ. But, but in this prototype gospel, it says this in Genesis 3.15, I'll put enmity between you, that's the serpent, it's a curse on the serpent, I'll put enmity between you and the woman, that's Eve. And between your offspring, in other words, the seed of the serpent, literally in Hebrew, it's the seed of the serpent, and her offspring, the seed of the woman. In other words, right from the beginning, there's this promise that there's going to be war, enmity between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. A war that goes throughout the book of Genesis and we see continue into the book of Exodus. Pharaoh, in the book of Exodus, is at war with Israel. Pharaoh is represented as the, the seed of the serpent. Israel is seen as the seed of the woman. It's a major theme that we see in the book of Exodus. There's other themes in Genesis that, that transfer into the book of Exodus, like the depravity of man. We see that throughout Genesis. The goodness of God, despite the sinfulness or the depravity of man. The sovereignty of God, that there is no other gods, that he is in control of everything. God's election, we see that clearly in the book of Genesis. It's a major theme, in fact. In Genesis, God chooses Abraham out of every family of the world. He chooses Isaac over Ishmael. He chooses Jacob over Esau. And Jacob's descendants become God's chosen people. That word elect and chosen are the same. God's elect people, God's chosen people, Israel. God's treasured possession Exodus continues this story. If you would, look at verse 5. It says this, And all the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons. Joseph was already in Egypt. Again, it picks up right where Genesis left off. Israel, God's chosen people, is small and weak, and now they're in Egypt, really under the most powerful nation in the world. There's meant to be a contrast here. Here's God's chosen people, small and weak, Right? Under the power of the most powerful nation in the world, Egypt. Look at verse 6. Then Joseph died, and all his brothers, and all that generation. Really, as you go through this first part in this first chapter, verses 5 and 6 are meant to be dark verses. The small nation in, in Egypt, all the previous generation that God interacted with, had relationships with, had gave promises to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and the 12 brothers, the 12 sons of Jacob, have all died. But then we get to verse 7. 5 and 6, dark verses, verse 7 says this, But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. This is the first time in all of Scripture that we see the family of Jacob is called the people of Israel. This people has become a nation. God is fulfilling his promise to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob that we see over and over and over again in the book of Genesis. The first place we see is Genesis 12.1, which says this, Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to a land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation. From you, from your family, you will become a great nation. Verse 7 is hope. It's hope of this promise being fulfilled. Again, verse 7, the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied 
and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. Then verse 8. Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. This king is Pharaoh, who becomes a very important character, this idea of Pharaoh. First half of Exodus, he's very important. Right? He takes on the role of the seed of the serpent, as I said in Genesis 3.15. He's the seed of the serpent. In fact, in chapters 1 and 2, the seed of the serpent, this Pharaoh, attacks the seed of the woman, God's chosen people, Israel. And there's three attacks, three attempts really to stop God's blessing on the seed of the woman, Israel. The first attempt is harsh slavery. He's trying to stop the growth of the Israelites, the growth of Israel. Right? He, and he puts on this harsh slavery to do it. But look at verse 12. But the more they, the Israelites, were oppressed right, with this harsh slavery, the more they multiplied and the more they spread abroad. The harder the, the seed of the serpent Pharaoh oppressed the Israelites, the more they grew and the more they spread. It grew miraculously. First attempt was harsh slavery. The second attempt, right, second attack on God's people, the seed of the woman, right, was a quiet genocide. Pharaoh commanded the Hebrew midwives to murder any son that was born to a Hebrew, to do it quietly. In verse 17, look what it says. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. Heroic, these midwives. I can't wait to meet them in heaven. The third attempt after this quiet genocide didn't work out, was an open genocide. We start to see the madness of Pharaoh. He, verse 22 says this, the Pharaoh commanded all his people, that's all the Egyptians, every son that is born to the Hebrews, you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. This was a public genocide that was Commanded by Pharaoh and committed by the Egyptians that they would kill all the boys born to the Hebrews and, and then take the, the girls one day as slaves. But look at Exodus chapter 2, verse 1. Now a man from the house of Levi went and took as his wife a Levite woman. The woman conceived and bore a son, and when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him for three months. Of course, this is Moses. Verse 3. When she could hide him no longer, she took him for him a basket. Literally, an ark in Hebrew. It's the same word, ark. It's only used in Genesis in this one spot in Exodus, this part of the story, that she took an ark, right, which points back to Genesis. Again, one once again, just like in Genesis, man's hope is found in an ark. She took for him an ark made of bulrushes and dubbed it with bitumen and pitch. She put the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the riverbank. We know this story. Moses floats down the Nile in this ark. Right? Ends up being seen by Pharaoh's daughter, who's probably bathing rescues Moses and raises Moses as her own son in Pharaoh's own household. Just think about that for a second. 
Pharaoh, represented by the, as the seed of the serpent, he thinks he's in control, he's sovereign. Moses will grow up in his own household, in Pharaoh's own household, with the best education in the world. He would learn rhetoric, mathematics, astronomy, music, medicine, law, the art of diplomacy, probably hand-to-hand combat. In other words, Pharaoh is now training the very person that one day will be used by God to lead the Israelites out of Egypt. Pharaoh thought he was sovereign over both Egypt and Israel. But, but even with very little reference to God, in fact, in chapters 1 and 2, God's name is not mentioned once. It's not till chapter 3 that we see the word Yahweh. With very little reference to God, it is clear that God is in control. That he's the main character in chapters 1 and 2. That, that God, that Yahweh, is truly sovereign over Egypt and Israel. Even though Pharaoh thinks he is. Moses grows up well-educated, privileged, a life of comfort. And we find out that Moses also knew he was an Israelite or a Hebrew. Those words are kind of synonymous. He knows his heritage. He knows where he comes from. Probably because his mother taught him. In fact, just my guess, and I don't think the Bible speaks to it either way, but I have this feeling that Pharaoh's daughter was a righteous lady that probably told Pharaoh about his upbringing and where he came from. Look at Exodus chapter 2, verse 11. One day, when Pharaoh had grown up, we learned that Pharaoh was, or when, sorry, one day when Moses had grown up, we learned that Moses is about 40 here, we learned that in Acts 7, what Daniel read this morning. One day when Moses had grown up, he went out to his people and looked on their burdens. He saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. Verse 12, he looked this way and that, and seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. Now look at verse 15. When Pharaoh heard of it, when he heard that Moses killed an Egyptian... He sought to kill Moses, but Moses fled from Pharaoh and stayed in the land of Midian. Now, it's kind of important to understand Moses' life here. He spends 40 years in Egypt, right, being trained in the best school of the world. Then, after this event, he spends 40 years in Midian with the Midianites, right, learning really what it means to be a Midianite who were a nomadic people. And I want you to think about that. He spent 40 years learning from people that that were nomadic people how to be a nomadic people in the wilderness. 40 years getting trained, then 40 more years getting trained to be the leader of Israel. Look at Exodus chapter 3, verse 1. Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian, This is the end of this 40-year time in in Midian. And he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of the Lord. This is Mount Sinai. Look at verse 2. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out in the midst of a bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. In other words, it was kind of a miraculous event that he witnessed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. When the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, 
God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. That phrase is really important. God's saying Moses' name twice. We'll come back to that eventually. But Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. Then he said, do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet. The place of which you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. And the Lord said, I have surely seen the afflictions of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters and know their sufferings. God knows their suffering and he has compassion on his people. Verse 8. I have come down to deliver them out of the hands of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of the land to a good and broad land, to a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hevites, and the Jebusites. And now, behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me, and I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Now, I want you to just think of Moses here hearing all this. This would have been very exciting news. God's people finally, God is going to deliver them from the Egyptians. That's what got Moses in trouble in the first place. But look at verse 10. Come, I will send you. Wait, what? (laughs) You'll send who? Verse 10, come and I'll send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. Now Moses was probably extremely excited about this till verse 10. And it's very clear from verse 10 on that Moses wasn't too excited about this idea that he would be the one sent to Israel, to Egypt, and to Pharaoh. In fact, the next 30 verses, Moses argues with God about this. He gives four objections, really four arguments to God's plan, saying why God shouldn't do it this way. The first objection, really, he just asks this question, who am I? Why would you send me? Look at verse 11. But Moses said to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? Look at God's response, verse 12. He said, this is God. I'll be with you. Look what God's doing here. God is telling Moses, stop looking at yourself. Look at me. Stop looking at yourself. Who am I? Who am I, Moses? Look at me. I will be with you, Moses. We're going to see this theme over and over and over again in these next 30 verses. The second objection really is a good question. If you're going to be with us, well then, who are you? Look at verse 13. And Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel and, they, and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? I really think Moses was just asking God, Who are you? Who are you, God? What does it mean that you are Yahweh? God's proper name. At this point, I believe Moses and the Israelites knew the name of Yahweh. In fact, Yahweh is used 165 times in Genesis. 
forefathers spoke that name, Yahweh. I think the Israelites knew the name Yahweh, in other words, the sound, the word Yahweh. What Moses was asking is, what does it mean that you are Yahweh? What does your name mean? Who are you? Reveal your character to us. In other words, when I go to the Israelites and they ask me, who is this God? Can we trust him? What should I say? Look at verse 14. God said to Moses, I am who I am. In fact, as we go through this, there's going to be three responses that I want you to see. The first one is this. I am who I am. He said, say this to the people of Israel. I am has sent me to you. Verse 15. God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel, the Lord. We stop there when you see capital L-O-R-D, all of the, the Lord capitalized. That's the proper name of God, Yahweh. Yahweh, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. Moses, in other words, is saying, I am Yahweh. And I'm about to show you what that means. In fact, I believe this couple of verses here, what God's really telling Moses is, again, I'm about to show you what that means. And the rest of the book of Exodus is God revealing what it means that he is Yahweh. God is revealing his name to the Israelites. And this becomes really what I believe the main theme of Exodus is. The revelation of God's name. What it means that God is Yahweh as he redeems his people. Verse 15 again. This is my name forever and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. So the first objection is who am I? The second argument is well who are you? third objection is found in chapter 4, verse 1. If you would turn there. Chapter 4, verse 1. But Moses answered, But behold, they will not believe me or listen to my voice, for they will say the Lord did not appear to you. Again, what is Moses' focus here? On himself. Behold, they will not believe me or listen to my voice, they will say the Lord did not appear to you, which is Moses. Moses, again, is looking at himself, not God. So God graciously and patiently responds by giving Moses three signs, three miracles to perform to prove that his message was from God, which leads to a fourth objection. Look at verse 10. But Moses said to the Lord, Oh, my Lord, I am not eloquent either in the past or since. You have spoken to your servant, but I am slow of speech and of tongue. Again, I hope you're seeing a pattern here. Oh, my Lord, I am not eloquent. I am slow of speech and of tongue. Moses is is self-focused. In fact, this is all of our problems. We look at our lives. We look at us. We look at our talents, and we don't look at God. We're so self-focused that we're useless. We need to look to God. Moses was self-focused. 
Again, it's not clear why Moses said this. I am slow of speech and tongue. Most people believe, as I, I do too, that he probably had some kind of speech impediment. He stumbled over his words somehow. Maybe he had a stutter. Maybe he's been made fun of his whole life for the stutter as he's been in front of all the educated people of Egypt learning how to do public speaking. He just wasn't good at it. Listen to what God says. And just a side note, this is one of the most remarkable verses in all of Scripture. Verse 11. And the Lord said to him, Who has made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf or seen or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? You know, I know we come across verses like this in Scripture where they're all over the place, and there's a lot of questions. There's just two things I want to point out about this verse, verse 11. First one is this. God doesn't make any excuses or qualifications. He just says, who has made man's mouth? It sounds like the end of Job. Who has made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf or seen or, or, or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? That's it. No exceptions. The point is very clear. God is God. And he is sovereign over both our abilities and our disabilities. He is sovereign. The second observation is that this was meant to comfort Moses. Think about that. God is saying to Moses, I am sovereign over man's mouth. Moses, I made you exactly the way I wanted to make you so that I would be glorified. I'm in control. Just trust me. You know, for I've mentioned this a number of times, but this is one of my favorite verses in Scripture because I'm someone that really struggled in school. And I had all types of, like, learning disabilities. And there's often times I'm like, why, God, would you do this to me? And I read this, and I'm like, God is saying, I made you exactly the way I wanted you to be. It's comforting. I get my eyes off myself and look to God and say, all right, God, what do you want me to do here? Verse 12. Now therefore go, <laughs> and I'll be with your mouth and teach you what to speak. And the same answer that he's given to Moses throughout this whole time that Moses is arguing with him is just simply, I will be with you. What do you have to fear? <laughs> and I will be with your mouth even. I'll, I will tell you what to say. I will teach you what to speak. Leads to a final plea by Moses, not really an argument. He's just crying out to God. He's out of excuses, so he just says this in verse 13. But he said, Oh my Lord, please send someone else. Verse 14. The anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses, and he said, Is there not Aaron, your brother, the Levite? I know that he can speak well. Behold, he is coming out to meet you. And when he sees you, he'll be glad in his heart. You shall speak to him and put the words in his mouth. Look, you see the graciousness of God here. He says, all right, Moses, I'll send you your brother, but guess what? You're still going. From here, 
Moses heads back to Egypt. Just a side note, verses 24 and 26, a weird thing happens at a lodging place. If you're interested, I did a whole sermon on those two verses, and um, you can look that up and find it online. But Exodus 5, Moses goes back to Egypt. He meets up with Aaron, then he meets up with the Israelites. The Israelites listen to Moses, which was a great victory for Moses. He was scared that the Israelite elders wouldn't listen to him, but they listened to him. So he's determined to go meet with Pharaoh, and he goes in Exodus 5, verse 1, with confidence. Look what he says. Look what it says, verse 1. Afterward, Moses and Aaron went and said to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, that's confidence, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Let my people go, that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. Verse 2. But Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord? I should obey his voice and let Israel go. I do not know the Lord, and moreover, I will not let Israel go. Now, there's a couple things I want to point out here. First, I want you to notice again the capital L-O-R-D. That means this is the proper name of God, Yahweh. So let me reread it with that, that thought in mind. Pharaoh said, who is Yahweh? That I should obey his voice and let Israel go. I do not know Yahweh. Second observation, Pharaoh is either never heard the name of God, never heard that word Yahweh before, or is sarcastically saying he doesn't matter. Either way, he's questioning Yahweh's authority. Which leads to the third observation. This question, who is Yahweh, that Pharaoh asks, really becomes the main thesis of Exodus. It's the same type of question Moses asked in chapter 3. What does it mean that you are Yahweh? Who is Yahweh? In fact, the first half of Exodus, which we'll be in for a while, is God answering this question. He's answering Pharaoh's question, who is Yahweh? And by answering this question, God is revealing his name to, to Pharaoh, to Moses, to the Egyptians, the Israelites, to the surrounding nations, which become very important when you get to the meta-narrative of Scripture and the Israelites start attacking other nations, really to the whole world, even to us today. The book of Exodus reveals the name of the Lord. It reveals God's character, what it means that God is Yahweh. In fact, if you want to know who God is, I don't know if there's a better book to go to. The book of Exodus reveals God's character to us. Pharaoh's question really sets up the rest of the book of Exodus, who is Yahweh? So in chapter 5, Pharaoh questions God, who is Yahweh? Pharaoh questions God's authority, who is Yahweh, that I should obey his voice? Pharaoh challenges God, I do not know Yahweh, and moreover, I will not let Israel go. And finally, Moses once again attacks God's people by making this harsh slavery of the Israelites even harsher. In fact, impossible. The situation gets very, very, very bad for the Israelites very quickly. And the Israelites end up blaming Moses and Aaron for this. By the end of chapter 5, we see Moses in a very discouraged place. Really, Moses cries out to God in his discouragement. 
verse 22. And Moses turns to the Lord and says, O Lord, why have you done evil to this people? Why did you ever send me? For since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has done evil to this people, and you have not delivered your people at all. Very discouraged prayer that Moses prays to God. Maybe you've been here before praying a prayer somewhat like this. Exodus 6 starts with a poem. This poem is what I read to open up the sermon this morning. It's a poem, really, to encourage Moses in this dark place. Let me just, again, get the context of this poem, because I think it's a very important poem in the the book of Exodus. Moses is alone. He's discouraged, right? His people, the Israelites, the people of God that he's trying to help. His people have left him, turned on him. They want him just to leave Egypt. And Pharaoh, the most powerful man in the world is determined at this point to stop the Israelites from leaving, even to the point of brutal tactics. You better believe Moses' life is on the line. Discouraging place. and He cries out to God in desperation and discouragement. The end of chapter 5, and God responds in chapter 6 with an encouraging poem. And I spent three weeks on this poem, so I'm just going to read it this morning. Exodus chapter 6, verse 2, once again. God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty, but by my name, the Lord, I did not make myself known to them. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land in which they lived as sojourners. Moreover, I have heard the groaning of the people of Israel, whom the the Egyptians hold as slaves. And I have remembered my covenant. Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from slavery to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment, and I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God, and you shall know that I am the Lord your God who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians." I will bring you to the land that I swore to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to you for a possession. I am the Lord. Again, this poem given from God to Moses was meant to encourage him. There's one thing I want you to to see in chapters 3 through 6 that I hope you picked up as we went through the sermon series on all this interaction between God and Moses. I hope you saw God's patience and gentleness and care for Moses. Over and over and over again, he just encourages Moses. In fact, one of the major themes in in these few chapters is God's fatherly nature. He tells Moses over and over again, Moses, I will be with you through this. The end of Chapter 6, we see a genealogy. Again, I did a whole sermon on this genealogy. If you want to listen to that, you can. That brings us to chapter 7. Chapter 7 through 10 really becomes repetitive. 
It's meant to be. It's a lot, a big portion of scripture. It's meaning it's an important portion of scripture. We see plague after plague after plague being poured out on the Egyptians. We see nine out of the ten plagues in chapters 7 through 10. Really, under, to understand this plague narrative, you need to pay attention to three characters and three body parts, as I've talked about before. Three characters and three body parts that are all intimately connected. You have Moses, one character, and his lips, a body part. Moses' lips. You have Pharaoh, another character, and his heart, a body part. And then you have God, or Yahweh, another character, and his hand. Moses' lips, Pharaoh's heart, and God's hand. So let's look at Moses' lips first. Look at Exodus chapter 6, verse 28. Exodus chapter 6, verse 28. It says this, On the day when the Lord spoke to Moses in the land of Egypt, the Lord said to Moses, I am the Lord. Tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, all that I say to you. But Moses said to the Lord, Behold, I am of un uncircumcised lips. How will Pharaoh listen to me? Again, Moses is complaining. Listen to God's response. Chapter 7, verse 1. And the Lord said to Moses, See, I have made you like God to Pharaoh. And I want you to just think about that for a second. Moses is complaining about his uncircumcised lips, right? His slowness of speech, his, his speech impediment that he has. And God's response to Moses is this. See, I have made you like God to Pharaoh. In other words, Moses' lips, probably a thing that Moses hated about himself the most, will function with divine authority over Pharaoh, the most powerful man in the world. As if God himself was speaking. Which leads to the second character and body part, Pharaoh's heart. Pharaoh's heart really becomes a major theme in the book of Exodus. It's mentioned 20 times. Look at verse 3. But I, this is God, but I will harden Pharaoh's heart. And though I multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt, Pharaoh will not listen to me. The second time that God has said, I will harden Pharaoh's heart, the first time is in Exodus chapter 4, verse 21. It says this, and the Lord said to Moses, When you go back to Egypt, see that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I have put in your power. But I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Again, the hardening of Pharaoh's heart becomes an important theme in the book of Exodus. It's mentioned 20 times, and it's described in three different ways. Sometimes the Bible says that Pharaoh hardened his own heart. Exodus 8.15 is an example of this. It says, But when Pharaoh saw that there was a respite, he hardened his heart. Other times the Bible just says that Pharaoh's heart was hardened. Exodus 7.13 says this, Still Pharaoh's heart was hardened. Without giving the who hardened it. But finally, God identifies himself as the one hardening Pharaoh's heart. 
couple examples. Exodus 4.21, again, it says, But I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Or Exodus 7.3, But I will harden Pharaoh's heart. I've talked about this before, and, and I just want to say it again. This is a perfect illustration of the doctrine of compatibilism. Compatibilism is just a fancy word. That means that God's sovereignty and man's responsibility are compatible. Or, a better way of saying it, are in harmony. They go hand in hand. Another way of saying this is that God is sovereign over man's choices, yet man is still responsible for his choices. And our choices matter. And they're real. You may ask me, well, how does that work, Nathan? And my answer back is, I don't know. <laughs> it's a mystery. The Bible just states it, just like the Trinity, that God is three in person, yet one God. You ask me, well, how is that? I don't know. <laughs> the Bible just states that that is true. Without any need of explanation. What I know for sure is that God is telling Moses that he is the one in control, not Pharaoh. In fact, God is going to use Moses' lips to harden Pharaoh's heart so that God will be able to reveal his name and display his glory to the world. Which leads to the final character and body of heart, Yahweh's hand. Look at verse 4. Pharaoh will not listen to you, then I, this is Yahweh, then I will lay my hand on Egypt and bring my host, my people, the children of God, out of the land of Egypt by great acts of judgment. Again, this is super important. Moses' lips will be used to harden Pharaoh's heart so that Yahweh could stretch out his hand against Pharaoh with great acts of judgment. And you may be asking why. Well, verse 5 tells us, that the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord, that I am Yahweh. This really is the heart of Exodus. God revealing his name. Remember Exodus 3.15, God said to Moses, Say to the people of Israel, Yahweh, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. Remember Exodus 5, verse 2, Pharaoh said, Who is Yahweh? That I should obey his voice and let Israel go. I do not know Yahweh. Well, guess what? He's about to find out. God is about to show Pharaoh who he is, what it means that he is Yahweh. In other words, he's going to answer Pharaoh's question, who is Yahweh? And he's going to use the rebellion and disobedience of Pharaoh to reveal his name, to display his glory for generations and generations and generations to come, even to us today, thousands of years after the exodus still learning who God's name is, what it means that he is Yahweh. This is why God raised Pharaoh up. Exodus 9, 16 says this, For this purpose, I, that's Yahweh, I have raised you, that's Pharaoh, up, to show you my power so that 
my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. In fact, that the prototype Great Commission right there. We are to take God's name to all the earth. Take the story of redemption, which is at the heart of Exodus, to all the earth. I just want you to see this. this is so important. Go back. Exodus chapter 7, verse 2. Let me just read through this. Exodus chapter 7, verse 2. If you want to understand the plague narrative, this is it. Verse 2. You shall speak. It's Moses' lips. By the way, God wants his people to speak. I want to make that clear. We shouldn't live hypocritically to what we say. But we should also say should also speak. God has called Christians and his people to speak, to proclaim truth. I mean, God could have easily sent an angel to, to Pharaoh, or spoke to him himself, or wrote it in the sky, but he sent Moses to speak. You shall speak. That's Moses' lips. All that I command you, and your brother Aaron shall tell Pharaoh to let the people of Israel go out of his, his land. But I will harden Pharaoh's heart. That's Pharaoh's heart. And how is it hardened? By Moses' lips. Verse 3. But I will harden Pharaoh's heart. And though I multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt, Pharaoh will not listen to you. Then I will lay my hand, that's Yahweh's hand, on Egypt and bring my host, my people, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by great acts of judgment. Why? Verse 5. The Egyptians shall know that I am Yahweh. That's the purpose. That God's name would be known. That God's name would be glorified. That God's name would be revealed. Again, God is revealing his name in the book of Exodus. Verse 5. The Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring out the people of Israel from among them. This is what's happening in chapter 7 through 10. God is determined to use Moses' lips to harden Pharaoh's heart so that God could stretch out his hand against Egypt. Verse 5, that the Egyptians shall know that I am Yahweh, so that his name may be proclaimed in all the earth, Exodus 9.16. So that God's name would be known, so that God's name would be glorified. This is the purpose of Exodus, and I just want to be clear. That's the purpose of your Exodus. When God redeemed you and saved you from slavery, from death and brought you out into a new land, a new life into his kingdom. He did that so his name would be glorified so that we would come together and worship him and who he is. We get so self-focused as people and forget our purpose to glorify God with our lives. This is where we'll leave off. We'll pick up next week here. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, God, Lord, you are so good to us, Lord. 
You are patient with us, Lord. You care for us. You love us. You sent your son to die on the cross for us, Lord, that those that put their faith in him may have eternal life, that we could be a part of your kingdom, your people, like the Israelites, Lord. You have redeemed us from slavery. Also, that we could cry out in worship of you, that you would be glorified, that your name would be known, that your character would be revealed. Lord, I pray that our church has just a a God-focused understanding of Scripture. A God-focused theology, not a man-centered theology. That's a false theology. That all we do would be to your glory, in your Son's name. Amen.